From national news in D.C. to behind-the-scenes coverage of the Nebraska Capitol, this is your Capitol Connection. And now, bringing the Capitol to you, here's your host, Nate Graz. And welcome to Capitol Connection. We are broadcasting today from the Nebraska Family Alliance studio in Lincoln, just blocks away from our state capitol, where we are working every day to advance family, freedom, and life and to keep you informed on the biggest news in government, policy, and culture from a biblical perspective. On today's show, we're going to highlight our nation's first freedom, religious freedom, and why supporting and protecting religious freedom needs to be a priority for Christians in the United States. We'll discuss why it's so significant, what has happened in recent years that has placed that freedom in jeopardy, and break down one of the most important speeches on religious liberty in recent memory, delivered by the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr. Religious liberty, it's one of the most crucial yet misunderstood issues in America today. Despite a long-standing commitment to religious freedom, there are two societal trends that have made calls to restrict religious liberty increasingly common. First, As America's religious landscape has become more secular, there is no longer a consensus about the role of religion in public life. And second, as society has moved away from a biblical understanding of marriage and family and human sexuality, the historical Christian beliefs and teachings on these topics are increasingly seen as outdated and worse, hateful. As a result of these trends, even some Christians have a poor understanding of religious liberty. There is a growing perception that support for religious liberty is a pretense or code for bigotry and discrimination. But we know that that's not true. Therefore, we need Christians who care about preserving religious liberty to articulate more persuasively why protecting everyone's religious beliefs and practices serves all people. And William Barr did just that in a powerful speech on religious liberty in America at Notre Dame Law School. It is well worth listening to and talking about. William Barr is the Attorney General of the United States, and he is also an unabashed defender of religious freedom. In his remarks, Attorney General Barr traces the central role of religious liberty in our nation's history and the importance of a morally disciplined and virtuous citizenry for maintaining a free government. He also took note of the current threat of secularism and moral relativism. His speech is full of mic drop moments, important fundamental truths, and made for a forceful presentation on the origins of our nation's first freedom and its great importance. But rarely has a speech about religious freedom stirred up as much ire and hatred from secular progressives than this one has. Many in the mainstream media were quick to condemn the speech and attacked Attorney General Barr as bigoted and anti-this and anti-that, but in doing so ended up really proving his thesis. Attorney General Barr points to the weakening of religious morals and the rise of secularism and progressivism as the primary causes for the deterioration of the family, the rise of big government, and the descent into moral chaos. While typically moral societies bounce back and the pendulum swings back the other way, Attorney General Barr warns that if we aren't careful, it may not happen again this time. So we're going to play a good portion of the speech because it's really profound. 
and it's something that everyone should hear and learn from. And then we'll dissect what we should take away from it and why in particular Christians need to step up and make supporting religious liberty a top priority. Here is Attorney General William Barr speaking at the Notre Dame Law School. I think we all recognize well, that over the past 50 years, religion has been under increasing attack. On the one hand, we have seen the steady erosion of our traditional Judeo-Christian moral system and a comprehensive effort to drive it from the public square. On the other hand, we see the growing ascendancy of secularism and the doctrine of moral relativism. By any honest assessment, the consequences of this moral upheaval have been grim. Virtually every measure of social pathology continues to gain ground. In 1965, the illegitimacy rate was 8%. The last time I was attorney general in 1992, it was at 25%. Today, it is at over 40%, and that's the national average. In many of our large urban areas, as we know, it is well over 70%. Along with the wreckage of the family, we are seeing record levels of depression and mental illness, dispirited young people, soaring suicide rates, increasing numbers of angry and alienated alienated young males, an increase in senseless violence, and a deadly drug epidemic. As you know, over 70,000 people die a year from drug overdoses. That is more casualties in a year than we experienced during the entire Vietnam War. I I won't dwell on the bitter results of the new secular age. Suffice it to say that the campaign to destroy the traditional moral order has coincided, and I believe has brought with it, immense suffering and misery. And yet the forces of secularism, ignoring these tragic results, press on with even greater militancy. Among the militant secularists are many so-called progressives, but where is the progress? We are told we are living in a post-Christian era, but what has replaced the Judeo-Christian moral system? What is it that can fill the spiritual void in the hearts of the individual person? And what is the system of values that can sustain human social life. The fact is that no secular creed has emerged capable of performing the role of religion. Scholarship suggests that religion has been integral to the development and thriving of Homo sapiens since we emerged roughly 50,000 years ago. And it is just for the past few hundred years that we've embarked on this experiment of living without religion. We hear much today about our humane values, but in the final analysis, what undergirds these values? What commands our adherence to them? What we call values today is really nothing more than mere sentimentality, still drawing on the vapor trails of Christianity. Now, there have been times and places where the traditional moral order has been shaken in the past. 
In the past, societies like the human body seem to have a self-healing mechanism, a self-correcting mechanism that gets things back on course if things go too far. The consequences of moral chaos become too pressing. The opinion of decent people rebels. They coalesce and rally against obvious excess. Periods of moral retrenchment follow periods of excess. This is the idea of the pendulum. And we've all thought to ourselves, after a while, the pendulum will swing back. But today we face something different that may mean that we cannot count on the pendulum swinging back. First, is the force, fervor, and comprehensiveness of the assault on organized religion we are experiencing today. This is not decay. This is organized destruction. Secularists and their allies have marshaled all the forces of mass communication, popular culture, the entertainment industry, and academia in an unremitting assault on religion and traditional values. These instruments are used not only to affirmatively promote secular orthodoxy, but also to drown out and silence opposing voices and to attack viciously and hold up to ridicule any dissidents. One of the ironies, as some have observed, is that the secular project has itself become a religion pursued with religious fervor. It is taking on all the trappings of religion, including inquisitions and excommunication. Those who defy the creed risk a figurative burning at the stake, social, educational, and professional ostracism, and exclusion waged through lawsuits and savage social media campaigns. The pervasive and the power of our high-tech popular culture fuels apostasy in other ways. It provides an unprecedented degree of distraction. Part of the human condition has been that there usually has been no way to avoid the big questions that stare us in the face. Are we created or are we purely material accidents? Does our life have any meaning or purpose? But as Blaise Pascal observed, instead of grappling with these questions, many human beings are easily distracted from thinking about the final things. And indeed, we now live in the age of distraction, where we can envelop ourselves in a world of digital stimulation and universal connectivity. And we have almost limitless ways of indulging all our our physical appetites. There's another modern phenomenon that is suppressing society's self-corrective mechanism that's making it harder for us to restore ourselves. In the past, when societies are threatened by moral chaos, the overall social costs of licentiousness and irresponsible personal conduct become so high that society ultimately recoils and reevaluates the path it is on. But today, in the face of all the increasing pathologies, instead of addressing the underlying cause, we have cast the state in the role of the alleviator of bad consequences. We call on the state to mitigate the social costs of personal misconduct and irresponsibility. 
So the reaction to growing illegitimacy is not sexual responsibility, but abortion. The reaction to drug addiction is safe injection sites. The solution to the breakdown of the family is for the state to set itself up as an ersatz husband for the single mother and an ersatz father for the children. The call comes for more and more social program, programs to deal with this wreckage. And while we think we're solving problems, we are underwriting them. We start with an untrammeled freedom, and we end up as dependents of a coercive state on whom we depend. Interestingly, this idea of the state as the alleviator of bad consequences has given rise to a new moral system that goes in hand in hand with the secularization of society. It can be called a system of macro-morality, and in some ways it is an inversion of Christian morality. Christianity teaches a micro-morality. We transform the world by focusing on our own personal morality and transformation. The new secular religion teaches macro-morality. One's morality is not gauged by their private conduct, but rather their commitment to political causes and collective action to address various social problems. This system allows us not to worry so much about the strictures on our own private lives, because we can find salvation on the picket line. We can signal our finely tuned moral sensibilities by participating in demonstrations on this cause or on that. Something happened recently that crystallized this difference between the, the, these competing moral systems. I was attending mass at a parish I did not usually attend in Washington, D.C. And at the end of mass, the chairman of the Social Justice Committee got up to give his report to the parish. And he pointed to the growing homeless problem in D.C. and explained that more mobile soup kitchens were needed to feed them. This being a Catholic church, I expected him to call for volunteers to go out and provide for this need as volunteers. But instead, he recounted all the visits that the committee members had made to the DC government to lobby for higher taxes and more spending to fund mobile soup kitchens. A third phenomenon which makes it difficult for the pendulum to swing back is the way the law is being used as a battering ram to break down traditional moral values and to establish moral relativism as the new orthodoxy. Law is being used in a couple of ways. First, either through legislation, but more frequently through judicial interpretation, the forces of secularism have been continually seeking to eliminate laws that reflect traditional moral norms. At first, this involved rolling back laws that prohibited certain kinds of conduct, hence the watershed decision legalizing abortion, and since then the legalization of euthanasia, and the list goes on, as we all know. More recently, we have, been, we have seen the law used aggressively to force religious people and entities to subscribe to practices and policies that are antithetical to their faith. The problem is not that religion is being forced on others. The problem is that irreligion is being forced, secular values are being forced on people of faith. 
This reminds me of the way Roman emperors just couldn't leave the minority of Christians in the empire alone, although they were loyal to the emperor. They couldn't leave them in peace. They would mandate that they had to violate their their conscience by offering religious sacrifice to the emperor as a god. Similarly today, militant secularists do not have a live and let live spirit. They are not content to leave religious people alone to practice their faith. Instead, they seem to take delight in compelling people to violate their conscience. For example, the last administration sought to force religious employers, including Catholic religious orders, to violate their sincerely held religious views by funding contraceptive and abortifacient coverage in their health plans. And similarly, recently, California has sought to require pro-life pregnancy centers to provide notices of abortion rights. This refusal to accommodate the free exercise of religion is relatively recent. Just 25 years ago, there was a broad consensus in our society that our laws should accommodate religious belief. In 1993, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The purpose of the statute was to promote maximum accommodation to religion when the government adopted broad policies that might impinge on religious practice. And at the time, this was not controversial. It was introduced by Chuck Schumer with 170 co-sponsors in the House and was introduced by Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch with 59 co-sponsors in the Senate, and it passed the Senate by 97 to 3. But recently, as the process of secularization has accelerated, this statute has come under assault, and the idea of religious accommodation is falling out of favor. Because this administration firmly supports accommodation of religion, the battleground at this time has largely shifted to the states. Some state governments are now attempting to compel religious individuals and entities to subscribe to practices or to espouse viewpoints that are incompatible with their religion. Ground zero for these attacks on religion are the schools. And to me, this is the most serious challenge to religious liberty today. For anyone who has a religious faith, by far the most important part of exercising that faith is teaching that religion to your children. The passing on of the faith. There is no greater gift we can give our children and no greater expression of love. And for the government to interfere in that process is a monstrous invasion of religious liberty. So this is the challenge that we are facing. And we've now been given a a terrific overview of the historical significance of religious liberty and how, how we got here to this place where this fundamental freedom is now in jeopardy. There's so much to unpack here from Attorney General Barr's remarks, but for starters, I think this is both a refreshing yet sobering speech. Certainly, if you ever doubted the centrality of religious liberty in America, surely this address should convince you otherwise. But one noteworthy point that Attorney General Barr made is that The problem is not religion is being forced on others. The problem is that irreligion, secular values, are being forced on people of faith. We have government mandating that religious citizens violate their conscience or face punishment. And he highlighted how the changing nature of our system of government is due to the breakdown in morality. 
Something else that really stood out is when he touched on how those who defy the creed of secularism risk a figurative burning at the stake, the social, educational, and professional ostracism and exclusion waged through lawsuits, public shaming, and savage social media campaigns. And this is true. We're seeing it more and more, these character assassinations waged against those with religious convictions who dare speak out or stand up for their beliefs or simply don't want to partake in speech or events that violate their conscience. But as Billy Graham said, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. And that's what we need, men and women of courage who are willing to take that stand. And Attorney General Barr did end there on a positive note as he challenged listeners to ensure that we are putting our principles into practice in our own personal, private lives, saying we understand that only by transforming ourselves can we transform the world beyond ourselves. And certainly this is true as well. It starts with each of us as individuals in our own lives and in our own homes, living out God's calling for our lives. And I want to close with hopefully Another important takeaway from this in answering the question, why as Christians we should be so concerned about protecting religious liberty. As David Clausen, who is the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council, has argued, fundamentally Christians should support religious liberty because it's in the Bible. The Bible teaches that salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit and that force or coercion is futile in bringing about true belief in the gospel. The Bible envisions a society where religious liberty is respected and individuals make their own choices when it comes to religion. In other words, faith cannot be coerced. The state oversteps its God-ordained role when it tries to enforce a theological perspective onto its citizens. We see the distinction between church and state in Jesus' answer to the Pharisees in Matthew 22, where Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Although Caesar should be respected and obeyed in areas where he has legitimate authority, Caesar, who represents the state, cannot require preeminent allegiance because man's soul is directly accountable to God. It must be given freedom to pursue worship according to the dictates of conscience. Therefore, the state has no authority to determine the correct faith. Government doesn't get to choose whose religious beliefs are legitimate and whose aren't. This teaching is lived out implicitly in the lives and ministry of the apostles. For example, in Acts 17 through 19, Paul reasons with his listeners. He never lashes out or tries to force anyone to embrace his teaching. Rather, he patiently explains his beliefs to those willing to listen. The Bible teaches that salvation is a spiritual matter and must be embraced willingly. Thus, the state should provide freedom in the area of religion, because religion is more than just a subscription to private beliefs, but it encompasses all of one's life. The exercise of religion should be protected as broadly as possible. These principles derived from the Bible are good for all people. Everyone flourishes when they can follow the dictates of their own conscience and align their lives in accordance with their most deeply held beliefs. But as evident from the negative reaction to Attorney General Barr's speech, 
Christians must continue to articulate why a broad understanding of religious freedom serves all people. Because this freedom is for everyone. Religious freedom is not just about Christianity. This critical freedom gives everyone the right to believe and adhere to the lifestyle that they choose and ensures that the government cannot control, dictate, or force you to promote a message that goes against your religious or non-religious beliefs. The First Amendment guarantees that no one, regardless of their beliefs, is bullied by the government or coerced into retreating from civil and political life. And that is what we at Nebraska Family Alliance are dedicated to defending. And for more information on how you can help defend liberty, religious freedom, and the sanctity of life in Nebraska, visit our website, NebraskaFamilyAlliance.org. NFA is proud to boldly stand for family, freedom, and life because we believe that every life is a precious gift that deserves to be cherished and protected and that our religious liberties are more than just the right to believe what we choose. They are priceless freedoms bought with the lives of countless American citizens. Our inalienable rights come from God, and government exists to secure those rights, not create them. That's why we have to be engaged on the issues with our government and in our culture, ready and equipped with the knowledge and arguments to ensure that families thrive, life is cherished, and religious freedom flourishes. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm your host, Nate Graz, Policy Director for the Nebraska Family Alliance, hoping you'll join us again next week. Thanks for listening to your Capital Connection.